Hello and welcome to our new episode of Ethnic Policy Podcast, where we discuss and discover topics around ethnicities, ethnic conflicts, and minority politics around the world. Ethnic Policy is a research platform uh, concerned with identity, ethnic-related news and studies. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links will be in the description. Now, there are a few civilizations that have survived from the ancient times and remain uh, sovereign until our current times functioning with full statehood and um, um, like other nations. And a main characteristic of these and, um, and an obvious one is the geographical uh, permanence. Now, Egypt, which is a subject of this episode, has remained on the banks of the River Nile for millenniums, and the and inhabitants of this region have always been called Egyptians, regardless, regardless of the differences they grew uh, over time. And with a period of occupations uh, from neighboring powerful civilizations and nations, the Egyptian identity must have uh, alternated across the years. But in this episode, we'll be specifically looking into the Egyptian identity during the 20th century. To discuss this, we're delighted to have with us today Dr. Raphael Cormac. Dr. Cormac has a PhD in the 20th century Egyptian theater from the University of Edinburgh. He is the author of Midnight in Cairo, a forthcoming book about the woman of Cairo's early 20th century nightlife, and the uh, editor of two collections of Arabic short stories in translation, The Book of Khartoum and A Book of Cairo. The Book of Cairo. Uh, good evening, doctor. Good evening. Good evening. So, Dr. Raphael, before we get into discussing the ethnic composition of Egypt throughout the 20th century, uh, take us to, say, the pre-Nasser era. What defines an Egyptian? What makes an Egyptian Egyptian? Right. I mean, this is a, a really important question. And uh, a great thing about looking at Egypt in the 20th century is it's one of the places where we can really see how this, you know, ethnicity, nationality, maybe identity uh, is in the process of really sort of formation and change. I mean, that's true in lots of places, but in Egypt, we can see it very clearly. Uh, so in the 19th century, uh, Egypt is officially part of the Ottoman Empire, although it's, uh, it's run by Muhammad Ali and, and his family. So it has uh, nominal kind of uh, autonomy. But Egyptians were sort of legally speaking Ottomans. Uh, and in the 20th century, that starts to change. And Egyptians are forced to ask themselves, well, okay, who are we? Uh, when, I mean, uh, I'm sort of, I, uh, I'm building also quite a lot on the work of Will Hanley, who published a book recently uh, called Identifying with Nationality, in which he looked at Alexandria. Uh, and he showed how people are really only forced to think about their nationality in the 19th century in Egypt when they go to the courts where they're confronted with it legally. Uh, so this is kind of a moment in Egypt when uh, in, the, in the 20th century, so after the sort of fall of the Ottoman Empire, when Egypt officially becomes uh, an independent country in the 1920s, they have to say, well, okay, what is an Egyptian? And there were quite a lot of competing answers to that and, you know, a lot of debate around the subject. So um, one thing that uh, people brought up was, uh, oh, are we a pharaonic society or are we an Islamic society or are we Arab? Are we, I mean, what exactly is it? And there's a, there's a huge amount of debate around that. Um, 
another important question to raise, not, not so much about sort of the historical background, but about contemporary Egyptians are, what do we do with everyone who's in the countries? I mean, people have come from all over the world and are in Egypt. Uh, are they now Egyptians? Um, and the basic answer that they came up with in the 1920s uh, was if you've been in Egypt since uh, 1948, I think it was, or, you know, since the mid 19th century, if your family's been there, you qualify, it's fine. Uh, or if you've been an Ottoman subject who was born in Egypt, then that's fine. But then, uh, then around the edges, you have all these other communities who are asking whether they can be Egyptian or not. Uh, and well, we'll, we'll go on to talk a little bit about those other communities, but as always, the answer is not clear. So there's a, there's a painter, a Turkish painter called uh, Hidayet, who if you go around Cairo, you know, go to the royal palaces, and you look at the bottom of all the paintings, he did almost all of the 1920s and 1930s paintings of the Egyptian royal family. Um, but he was Turkish. I think he was born in Turkey. So sort of officially um, not an Egyptian, Egyptian. legally speaking. Uh, but he, when interviewed at one of the art exhibitions, he said his view was anyone who lives in Egypt and kind of breathes the air of Egypt can count themselves as an Egyptian. Um, so there was that view, but yeah, and legally speaking, that was <laughs> that was not the case. Uh, so yeah. What I want to address now is um, on the road to changes in 1952, where where the definition, so the the, the what you've just mentioned, there are different definitions that were present in the social um, conversation and. But then one definition wins, and it's the narrowest definition that wins, um, uh, you know, coming up to 1952 and the social changes and political changes and the military changes in the region and, and, and what it begins. But this narrower definition, definition and the years prior to it, there is a rise in some consensus to the idea that, you know, even the king is not Egyptian, uh, a very anti-British sentiment, yeah. um, how how did this go around and what happened afterwards? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so in the end, the, the Hidayat view of what is an Egyptian, that all you have to do is breathe Egypt uh, uh, did not win out. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, uh, I mean, you know, as most countries around the world, the basic, the basic laws are, you know, if your parents were classed as Egyptian, then you could get to be an Egyptian, but which is a sort of slight, slight mind, uh, yeah. you know, go in circles with that. Um, but uh, yeah, basically what seems to have happened is, I mean, after NASA, you know, after the Free Officers Revolution, uh, they're, you know, now forced again to sort of confront more, more in the face of what being an Egyptian is, you know, in this moment of decolonization and now, because I mentioned before that Egypt becomes officially independent in the 1920s, but there's still a lot of, um, you know, British meddling. The mm. British are, are really behind the scenes doing a lot. Uh, there's also, you can't talk about nationality in Egypt without talking about the system of capitulation, which is, still exists in the 1920s, but is abolished in, in the 30s. So the system of capitulations 
was, I mean, and this is central to, uh, to a lot of the discussions, was basically an old Ottoman system, which was devised so that a European merchant traveling through the Ottoman Empire, say, would not be subject to Ottoman law. They would have their own. Uh, so, you know, if they got arrested, uh, they could be tried by their own consulate. I mean, and it was invented, you know, centuries before, um, but survived in Egypt as nowhere else into the 20th century. And so to call someone a, a foreigner in Egypt, really what, what you mean by that is they have consular protection or so therefore if they commit a crime uh, they have the right to be tried not by Egyptian courts but by their consular court. Which uh, has resulted I assume in a lot of fraction, frictions with the, with the society as in if, if two are arrested an Egyptian and a foreigner it would add a lot more complications and it would seen as a privilege to be a foreigner. Yeah and, uh, and it was seen as well as a, a very easy ride and the kind of the perception being that consular courts would never really convict you or, you know that uh, i'm sure that you know some people did get convicted but yeah it was certainly seen as yeah. a um a way to cheat the system basically um and and it's very complicated because you know say for example the british courts a lot of the people who are you know protectorates of of the british uh, court system who had the right to go to these courts were not what we would see as British people, you know, and, you know, what, what, you know, so often there were Maltese, they were Cypriot, uh, and, you know, and the French courts, for instance, a lot of those people were uh, from North, French North Africa. Uh, so, so it was kind of not devised on a sort of system of, of either ethnicity or really even identity. It was, it's unclear whether, whether these people would have identified as British or sort of just have realized that they had uh, a British consular protection and had the right to use the British court. So, so in a sense, they were subject to that system, but weren't, wouldn't have identified as, say, British. Um, for, so that is the system. <laughs> exactly yeah. why we got there. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's extremely important to know. So that is the system that exists uh, in the 20s and 30s that is uh, abolished in the, by the, the, the 1936 uh, Anglo-Egyptian Treaty uh, puts an end to that. I mean, it slowly phased out. Um, so again, so when you have NASA, then by 1952, the free officers revolution, you, the question of what is Egyptian becomes even more pressing. Uh, and, and as we said before, the definition is quite narrow that's taken, but it is broadly speaking, taken from the legal definition of uh, a native uh, you know, quote unquote, under you know the colonial system beforehand. Yeah, uh, so, so essentially, the people who were who were not allowed to use the foreign court. Right, and uh, it's it's so this gets me thinking. Eh? And now with the Nasser area coming in, in full, there is also the fact that the Egyptian uh, understanding and just the sorry the definition of an Egyptian gets narrower and it's it's, it's shaped to a specific slice of the society and so on and forth, but. There's also the replacing of the Arab nationalism. So, it, you know, how you were asking in the beginning, are we a pharaonic state or are we an Islamic state or are we Arabs? And then there's a whole dominance and Egypt kind of, you know, is the Arab Union startup, say, you know, a hub for, for, for the whole idea of Arabism. And, and then 
what happens is there are sub-ethnic societies within Egypt that sort of disappears from the scene. You don't see their languages anymore. Those are, you know, they've lived in Egypt way prior to the 19th century. Uh, they're not from immigrant um, um, countries, not from neighboring countries. They have inhabited these areas within the Egyptian territory for um, more than centuries, but um, in the south or in, or, or, in, or in the western deserts or in um, Sinai. And what happens? How does Nasser enforce this idea of, of nationalism, Arab nationalism, and wh why does it win and, and in a very easy um, over other uh, identities? Well, I suppose it does win, uh, but uh, I think the, re the reason that there is quite a lot of interest in this subject today, uh, which I think there is, uh, I think it's fair to say that people are interested in this sort of period of the 20s and 30s, and, and you know, the ethnic diversity of Egypt is a, is a hot topic right now, because, mm -hmm. because these debates haven't really ever actually been settled. Uh, and questions of exactly who Egyptians are were not put to bed forever. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, yeah. and that's a, a reason why people are are, bringing, are becoming much more interested in this. It reminds me uh, of something, sorry, while preparing for this episode, the term mutamassirin comes up a lot. And um, now I understand what it means from an Arabic perspective. What I want to understand is, who is meant by that term um, during that era, pre-Nasser era, I assume? Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a reasonably broad term, but it's in that pre-Nasser period, it basically means people who are not uh, whatever, you're ethnically Egyptian, not sort of natives, as it were, is, uh, in the, to use the, the terms of the time, or I mean, Watani would be the Arabic word yeah. uh, that corresponds to that. Uh, but are living in Egypt and, and sort of are a part of Egyptian society, see themselves quite possibly as Egyptian, uh, perhaps, you know, hyphenated Egyptian. They might see themselves as a Greco-Egyptian. So, and the, the, those communities are largely, so that's Syrians, I mean, by, by which we mean greater Syria. So that includes, yeah. you know, Lebanese, include Palestinians and South mm. Syria and, uh, and also Syrians. Uh, and then there's Greeks, uh, and uh, there's Italians, there's Armenians, there's Maltese. We're sort of slightly, I mean, the two biggest foreign communities in, in Egypt are the Greeks and the Italians. And the you know, foreign communities who are, who are living there are established there. And then you sort of, you have others, there's the uh, there's often a question of, of whether Jews should have their own category there. Sometimes people do, but, or whether they should just be considered as part of other groups. Okay, so now we've touched on the main communities that were present in Egypt uh, back then, and they have their, um, I wouldn't say cultural dominance, but cultural um, presence, as in they have their own schools, um, their own businesses, their own communities, I would assume nightclubs, bars, restaurants, hangout spots, and things like that. Briefly, I want to get, you know, a glimpse of every single community from the, from the major ones. So uh, in my understanding, for example, the Greeks have contributed a lot to, say, the industrial, the media, the banking system, the, the, the other sectors, and, and 
what is their input yeah. to the Egyptian society during the 20th century? So, I mean, the Greeks are the kind of, are the largest community uh, and also the largest in the kind of historical imagination. Uh, so they have a, you know, a big impact. Uh, in terms of what Greeks do in Egypt, I mean, it goes uh, all the way from the top to the bottom. I and mean, you have a lot of people making a lot of money in the cotton trade. Uh, famously, I mean, Banaki family uh, who made money and, and opened a museum in Athens. Uh, you have people who are sort of small business owners as well. I mean, sort of there's a stereotype of cafe and bar owners being Greek. And you also have the stereotype of waiters being Greek too. And, you know, I think there's also people who are, you know, ordinary sort of workers. So, I mean, it, the community cuts through really um, the whole the whole gamut. It, I mean, it also needs to be said that, I mean, at no point in the 20th century did all of you know the Greeks, the Italians, uh, the British, the French put together make up more than two percent of the Egyptian population. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's exaggerated in the social it's, consensus. Too much for you. Yeah, I mean they're um, concentrated in uh, in cities, so obviously they have a big, a greater presence. Yeah. And but uh, but they have a, a larger influence culturally than, than numerically. And then, so from, from the Greeks, uh, there's also the Italians, and there's a, which is a big, big community in Egypt. But unlike the Greeks, does not have the same kind of position, I feel, in the, either in the historical imagination or in, or in the contemporary uh, imagination of, uh, of Egyptians. So, I mean, in plays and novels and things, you you often get a Greek character who's kind of satirized. You know, they have a funny accent or or, or whatever it is. Yeah. But you don't so often get an Italian character who's done the same too. And there's kind of not the same cliche or like sort of stereotypical, should I say. There's there's no real equivalent, I guess, to the Greek cafe owner with Italians, or at least not that I can think of right now. I'm sure someone can uh, come up with some examples, but it's by nowhere near as, uh, as prominent. Maybe um, this is because the Italian community was a little more insular than the Greek community. Uh, so it tended to keep more to itself. That's uh, a slight but, speculation, but I think it's Well, interesting fact, which I rather again, while I was preparing for this episode, is that the, the Italians in Egypt during World War II or before World War II uh, established branches of the National Fascist Party in Alexandria, and they had around seven headquarters, and, and uh, many of them were arrested by the British um, um, army to, during the war and only released after the war. Yeah, that's a, there is quite a strong fascist uh, support in uh, the Italians of Egypt, which is In a, in a way, sort of not what you would expect, but also in a way, he's quite predictable. It's, you know, diaspora communities stereotypically tend to be a little bit more conservative, you know, very invested in the idea of the, you know, the home plan. Uh, so, now, so you would expect them to be more nationalist. 
with with those communities, uh, predominantly the Greeks and the Italians, there is this period in time, at least the the Greeks and the Italians, there is a a systematic uprooting to them, uh, whether as an by consequences or as as an intentional uprooting to those communities from Egypt and and their uh, exodus during the fiftieth the nineteen fifties and I think by the seventies it was dried out. Um, what is it, in your opinion, that has um, as in, clue us in what, what was happening during those um, two decades? Uh, so yeah, this is a a very big question. Uh, it's a difficult question to answer in certain ways. I'll, I'll go to sort of both sides to it because this whole period that we've been talking about now of the twenties and thirties, and we'll get onto how it kind of ends, uh, has kind of two main interpretations to it. You know, either, and this is being very crude about it and, and no one exactly thinks like this, but you know, either you say this was a great multicultural paradise uh, and it was cosmopolitan and it was wonderful uh, and then NASA ended it. Um, or you can sort of say, uh, well, this is really just a, an exploitative, exploitative colonial relationship uh, in which this, you know, small minority took all the money whilst, you know, ordinary Egyptians were starving. Uh, and I, you know, no one thinks, and, you know, NASA, you know, they had it coming, NASA should have done it. So they're the two kind of poles, which I think no one is quite uh, 100% subscribed to either, but there's each one has, you know, certain um, things to it. But I'm sure, that, like at least we can agree on the sort of thing that happened in the 50s and the 60s that and, had led to the uproot. As in, for example, something that is thinking in my head right now would be nationalization of businesses. Where, yeah. uh, but you've explained how not every Greek, uh, you know, resident in Egypt was an owner of a cotton factory or, or so, or a restaurant or a bar. Uh, there was a, you know, blue collar population. Um, trying to earn just like any other immigrant society. And, yeah, and I, I, will, I will go into that. Uh, I will say that even, even that, not, not everyone sort of agrees <laughs> on. But yeah, so the, the, standard, the, the standard line is, okay, uh, it's in after the free officers revolution, uh, maybe not directly after, but broadly after. I mean, so after Suez, the French and the British expelled. Uh, and then there are policies of both uh, nationalization, which, which comes in the 60s, uh, and also but more before then, Egyptianization. So, you know, really, well, for one, really trying to make Arabic this sort of only real language used, but also to put Egyptians by, uh, by the definition of, uh, you know, by this kind of narrower definition of the term into businesses and making people hire Egyptians and sort of some expiring people who weren't Egyptians. Um, and so those things compounded to uh, make a lot of Greeks and Italians leave anyway. In addition to Arabic and English, what were other were there other languages present? If if yes, what were they? Uh, well, French was a much more lang an everyday language than English was. English was sort of not people well, wouldn't well, speak it nowhere near as much as French. It was sort of French was very much more of a language of business and diplomacy and, and sort of official 
done. So, you know, forms were more likely to have Arabic and French. Uh, and uh, I mean, it depends on what you mean by what languages were present. So say, for example, there are two sides of it I'm thinking right now. So um, there is the societal language, which is, as you said, the business, conducting business in that language. But there's also the media. Um, can, can how not by numbers, but as in, was there a presence of a strong French, um, you know, language in media, uh, publications producing, uh, pu sorry, publications publishing in, in, in French, English, or, or Greek, even in Italian and other languages? That, I mean, it was huge. Uh, there, were, I, uh, there was, in that period, setting up a journal was almost like setting up a podcast. <laughs> Uh, as in, yeah, <laughs> if you had something to say and wanted to talk about it, you were, I mean, it was different because you needed a bit of capital behind it. Podcasts don't need that much money, no. whereas setting up a journal does. Uh, so, there, I mean, yeah, there were, there were Greek journals, definitely loads. French, uh, an enormous amount. And a lot of French journals uh, were, you know, had it edited by Egyptians. As well, again, this is saying what an Egyptian is, but, you know, what you what would be defined narrowly yeah 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 um and uh yeah like mean would do care uh, uh lots of french magazines not i mean some in english not that many uh well, we had greek italian yes definitely Ar armenian and you you go through old lists of sort of where journals are coming up and you you know even in relatively small towns there will be an Armenian journal and a, a Greek journal, definitely. Some of them might not last very long, um, but, they but they're exist, all over the place. And I mean, I, you know, you, if you went into a shop, I'm sure you see all kinds of languages. If you go to a cinema, uh, there would be subtitles in Arabic, English, French, and Greek. That's how it Wow. Okay. That's a lot of text on the. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm going to address the, uh, Egyptian Jews, and um, we can start from the end if that makes it easier to use that slice of population that decided to leave Egypt, whether during World War II when when the um, um, Nazi forces were approaching, and then I, I'm not sure, but most of them probably migrated to Europe or, or other countries, and um, after the establishing of of, of Israel and um, the 1952 and Arabism, you know taking a different shape uh, uh, what what do you you know what clue us in what happened what is it uh well so by the time you get to the i mean late 1940s early 1950s is is when jews really start to leave i, I as far as i'm aware not really during the second world war even though the, the nazis were uh, at the gate. It is portrayed uh, in the media though that some business, uh, some business owners who were Jews, uh, who, who, Egyptian Jews, as in by, again by the narrow definition of an Egyptian, um, they decide to leave. But again, I'm, I'm, I know you would know better. So, um, I, I mean, they definitely get they get extremely worried. I guess, but I think it happens more in the late forties and fifties. And by that time, the Jewish population in Egypt. Uh, is extremely diverse. I mean, it's as diverse sort of as diverse. So you have Yiddish-speaking Jews, you have Ladino-speaking Jews, which is the sort of, you know, Sephardic. Uh, you have Arabic-speaking Jews. Uh, 
uh, and you have also sort of a French speaking, more of the elite would be French speaking, and then there are these other kind of languages. So it's, it's an extremely diverse community within itself. Um, and the Yiddish, for example, the Yiddish speaking Jews, they would have, I would assume, migrated to Egypt at some point because it's not um, common to speak Yiddish. Yeah. Yeah, I think they they largely came after the First World War, uh, and you know, and as you know, in the 1930s as well, quite a lot, quite a lot came to Egypt, uh, coming from Europe. Uh, and then, I mean, it it's throughout the 1930s, uh, you know, the the issue of Israel and Palestine is not big, really, in the Egyptian media or consciousness. I mean, people don't really pay that much attention to it. This is an ordinary person on the street. Um, but by the time of the 1940s, it becomes a, a, a big all, issue. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and basically uh, Egyptian Jews get, you know, caught up in that basically. I don't know. And they have all the same pressures that the say the Greeks and the Italians have with this kind of nationalization, uh, as well as this growing anti-Semitism in from the 1940s. And lots of people leave. Not everyone, but I mean, I'm, so there's some. Um, uh, when we're talking about the Greeks, uh, there's a good number st- do stay in Egypt. I mean, not sort of. Uh, the majority by any extent, say ten percent or something. Whereas uh, with uh, with Jews, it's more like you know a hundred people. After so that we have nineteen forty eight, which is a big turning point, and then of course nineteen fifty six, the Suez uh, crisis. I mean, this is something uh, which is kind of not possible to go over in its uh, complexities in in this talk. But I mean, that's so. Joel Bainin wrote a very good book about. Uh, the dispersal of Egyptian Jewry. Um, and uh, Gudrun Kramer has a good book about sort of the ending uh, uh, of that community. There, so it's, it's difficult, as you were saying before, necessarily to, to categorize yeah. uh, Jews, Jews in Egypt in, in the same way that you would a Greek. Uh, because the Greek, say, you could say, okay, everyone who has a Greek passport and yeah. is... Uh, 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 you know, rather, you know, has consular representation by the Greek government, and then maybe you lose a few people besides. But that's that's pretty much it. Uh, whereas, I mean, if you're Jewish, you have you maybe you're a French citizen, uh, maybe you're Italian, um, but uh, it's also uh, it, it's also true that. Uh, so to establish yourself as an Egyptian, you sort of had to prove that you'd been in Egypt for a, your family had been there for a long time, which is actually very difficult to prove in the, you know, in the yeah. mid 20th century. I mean, most people don't have paperwork going back to the sort of mid 19th century. Uh, so uh, quite often it was very easy for someone who you would look at and say, oh, you're Egyptian to get Egyptian citizenship. Uh, because you know the guy at the office would just stamp it, whereas it became more difficult for Egyptian Jews who had you know, Arabic speaking had lived there a long time. Um, 
And then, uh, obviously, and we haven't talked about uh, uh, the issue of, of Zionism, basically, and, and lots of Jews were expelled uh, for being, quote, unquote, Zionists, which, uh, yeah. uh, which is hard to, you know, hard to say. I, my sense, and like I say, I mean, you can read Joe Bainin or Gudrun Kramer who are, say other things about it. My sense is in the Egyptian community, uh, Jewish community in the sort of 1930s and 40s, there are a section of people who are quite Zionist, you know, young people mostly who are sort of uh, infused by this new movement. There's another section who are, who are very anti-Zionist, communist, for instance, and, uh, and but also others, you know, the sort of the Jewish establishment tended to be uh, anti-Zionist, not from a communist perspective, but more from a, uh, the idea that it, it was jeopardizing their own position in, in the country. That's a good, yeah. a very good book actually, which, which unites a lot of these subjects. I don't know if you've read it, El Mauluda. No, uh, I haven't actually. It just, it came out with, it's all in Amea. Uh, that that annoys me sometimes. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it, it sort of works because the, the yeah, idea the is that, generation. Um, it's Nazia Kamel okay. and she is talking to her grandmother. So so it's kind oh, of a discussion. Right. So yeah, it sort yeah. of so it kind of works. Anyway, she is uh Italian uh, and Jewish, uh but and marries uh an Egyptian Muslim um and okay. talks a lot about these uh <laughs> about all of these issues that that come up in the she's in the late 40s, early 50s, she's, you know, about 18 or something. So she's coming of age when all of this stuff is becoming an issue. She goes to a lot of anti-fascist kind of... Uh... Anyway, um, so those, so if you have those sort of a, an anti-Zionist community, uh, you know, amongst Egyptian Jews and, and a pro-Zionist one, probably the, from my sort of sense of it, the larger, you know, population were sort of not necessarily on either side. They uh, they were slightly curious about what was going on in Palestine. They were they thought, oh, a Jewish state is coming up right next to us. What were all these people talking about? Sound, you know, they were sort of maybe a little bit excited by it, but at the same time, didn't really necessarily see it as anything to do with them. Kind of maybe they would visit on a holiday or something, or or that. Um, and probably didn't look in that much detail at it in general. I mean, that, but then, you know, whatever, historical events are what they are. Take place and then, yeah, it uh, unfolds in a different way. Now, I, I often have a bonus question for interesting guests, and I've been following you for a while now on, on, on Twitter, and it, it's very interesting wherever, how you dig for these things and find them, and it's... Um, I often send them to my friends and tell them, oh, look, what, what, you know, like, for example, the communists who were arrested the other day, you were, you've published oh, uh, yeah. pictures of them and, you know, how the soldiers are looking. And it was very interesting anyway. So I, I want to ask you more about from an ethnic perspective or, you know, the immigrants, the minorities and identity and, and all those topics that we've covered. What, what do you, what have interest, what, what discovery did you come across uh, while you were looking into Egyptian uh, publications or books uh, during 20th century? That's a good, that's a good question. Uh, 
Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer I'm gonna give two answers to that. Uh, one which relates to what we were just talking about uh, about uh, Egyptian Jews, uh, just because I think it sort of uh, personifies something of what I was saying about people who were following with with a slight bit of interest, but, but we're, we're not really clear what's going on. There was this a guy who uh, uh, Egyptian Jew who lived in Abyssinia, who sort of was seeing what was going on in Palestine and then also was reading a sort of prophetic newspaper. At, at the time there was this newspaper published by Mahmoud al-Falaki, which sort of had prophecies kind of in it, you know, it said such as, and he saw in his name, it's like his initials will become king of the Jews. Uh, so he, he decided that he would proclaim himself king of Palestine and he went to go to Abdin Palace to tell Farouk that he was the king of Palestine was here and he wanted to talk to him with like two of his friends in a taxi <laughs> uh, and Farouk never saw him uh, but he sort Disappointed. of you know, sent him away and then he spent the, you know, the next few years sitting in a cafe telling everyone he was the king of Palestine <laughs> in a <laughs> Well, sort of just, how did uh, it end up for him? It, I, the thing about finding these little yeah. stories in journals is you never find out how it ends up. <laughs> and the other thing that I will, it's not so much, not such a neat story, uh, but something that we haven't talked about and that does come up in the journals is, uh, I mean, when we're talking about ethnicity, uh, skin color is, is an issue and, you know, Darker skins, again, again, in the case of Egypt, it's very hard to find uh, vocabulary, which is, you know, which necessarily maps yeah. to uh, English vocabulary on the subject. I mean, black people, basically, you, you might say, but, yeah. uh, but it comes with a whole, you know, that word comes with a lot of historical baggage, yeah. which is different in Egypt. Um, but anyway, there's a, I, I sort of always on the on the lookout for I I edited this, the book of Khartoum and I'm very interested in Sudanese culture and Sudanese literature at the time uh, and you have people like Muawiyah Noor the uh, great Sudanese writer who who comes to Cairo in the 1930s and is featured a lot in the journals and then goes back to Sudan later and he dies very young I think the implication is he commits suicide but no one ever exactly says that. Um, there, there are a lot of kind of this issue of where do uh, Sudanese, where do say Nubians, uh, where do they fit into the picture is one that I don't have a very neat answer for, but I think adds some more complication to the uh, to yeah. this whole question of identity and ethnicity. Because interestingly, so for example, how you were defining it in the beginning, or you said this was one of the definitions is that if you're from an, or if you were an Ottoman subject, you would be, but a lot of Sudanese, Sudan was an Ottoman subject, a B, King Farouk was king of Egypt and Sudan. Um, so I, the, I have a friend who kind of made me interested to do this episode because his story is that his great grandfather uh, was in Egypt during uh, the, early, the early 20th century and um, Again, he goes through the struggle that you've described of trying to prove that through paperwork that you have been here for over 50 years and 
all those details. And after a very long time, he manages to 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 prove that and gets the Egyptian citizenship. And you, you go through this, and you, you know, as a narrow definition of an Egyptian, talking about myself, you you would think that this is how things were all the time, but it's not because there were all these variables and stories and differences and societies that had to struggle to stay or earn the citizenship, or sorry, gain the citizenship or, or so on forth. And um, so, yeah, what, what what is it about the darker skin that was, so was it seen as a, um, with the historic implications of black people, does it, you know, correspond to that or is it seen differently? Uh I mean, I mean, broadly speaking, I, the 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 big book on this uh, is by Eve Trout Powell, uh, A Darker Shade of Colonialism, uh, which sort of goes into the into the history of it. There, I mean, there are a lot of parallels uh, between, say, you know, slavery being being a big parallel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but others. And there's a sort of if you want to be uh, if you want to be sort of uh, critical about it, you can, you know, you say, oh, well, there's, there's a lot of prejudice, uh, a lot of which is based on a, a history of slavery and uh, a mix of you know, domestic slavery, but also I, I think it's pretty well established, uh, although not as well established as in America, that there was sort of cotton field slavery in, in Egypt in the same way. And, um, from the and south of Egypt and Sudan, or from other African nations? Largely, I, I suppose, from Sudan, but I mean, yeah. and Sudan and from the south. Yeah. Uh, not from West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of those prejudices survive. But you can also say, and I, I mean, this is something that Eve Trout Powell uh, talks of quite interestingly about uh, Ali Al Qasar, the, uh, the comedian yeah. who does. Egyptian. Does uh, blackface a lot of the time is sort of Nubian uh, character, which in many ways is just like uh, a sort of American blackface. And is that, but he also tries to use this character to represent what an ordinary Egyptian is. Yeah. So if you if you wanted to try and and build a sort of inclusive identity, you could, I mean, you could maybe say that you know. Ali al is also trying to say that Egyptianness extends to include a Nubian. I want to conclude on a personal look. What interests you in, in, in all this? What made you out of, you know, I'm, I'm going to study 20th century in Egypt, for example. I think, well, I think I just love, I think the early 20th century is an amazing time in the world. I think it's a time when, and again, this uh, might be interesting, but uh, when really people are seeing themselves more than ever as citizens of the world. Uh, and, you know, historians sort of always want to say something is the first time that people saw themselves and nothing is ever the first time at all. Yeah. I'm sure in the 19th century, people also consider themselves part of the world. <laughs> but in the sort of 1920s and 30s is when in Egypt, really getting these journals that are publishing stories. Yeah, and you're getting stories from New York yeah. a week after they after they happen, and they're being published in the paper, <laughs> and everyone's browsing through it, saying, "Oh, what's going on in <laughs> New York right now?" Or, uh, and I find, and that's a, a kind of a time when people can start to be very idealistic, and I quite, I, I quite like 
naive, naive idealism. And <laughs> kind of that uh, so there's that. And, and also, I mean, I, the Middle East is, is, is very interesting in, in the 1920s, partly because it is really being confronted. I mean, Egypt especially is, is really what I know about, but is being confronted with all these questions that we've been talking about. Um, what is a nationality? What is an ethnicity? Who, you know, sort of, who am I <laughs> as, as an Egyptian? And what does that mean? And it's like, it, it's interesting to see different answers that people get to that question. Uh, Dr. Raphael, thank you so much for being with us today. I will put your uh, Twitter account link in the description because it's a very interesting uh, account for those who are enjoyed this episode I, I think that we'll find following you interesting thank you so much for being with us today thanks a lot